we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kian, and as usual, I'm coming to you straight from the Cabin in the Woods, located, for the duration of the lockdown at least, in Wild and Woolly, West Cork. Now, you join me for an episode that's something of an addendum to our previous one. If you haven't listened to our previous episode, it was all about the life and writings of Irish writer and traveller Lafcadio O'Hearn. He was a pretty extraordinary character who um, did a lot of travel uh, and travel writing in the 19th century, travelling to first to England, actually. He had a pretty rough period living in London um, from an Irish or at least a pseudo-Irish origin and then going and spending a little time in the US uh, in Cincinnati and then 10 years in New Orleans and then finally moving on later in life to Japan where he did his most famous writing and I think where he probably had his most lasting influence. However, we had a great episode previously all about his time in New Orleans because I personally am very taken with the sort of spooky mystical image of New Orleans and as it turned out, this fellow Lafcadio Hearn was um, pretty fundamental in helping to craft that episode. So if you're interested in that and you haven't heard it, go back into our catalogue and check out the episode Lafcadio O'Hearn, the man who invented spooky New Orleans. So that episode found us diving into sort of voodoo and that sort of thing. And we didn't really talk much about zombies um, because that wasn't any much that Lafcadio O'Hearn wrote a tremendous amount about. But just when I was finishing the episode, I did come across a, a mention of an article that he wrote in 1889 uh, when he was in the Caribbean. And he did write an article in which he used the word zombie, but it isn't sort of the way that we think about zombies now. He's using it clearly as some sort of, it's like a spirit or a demon or in some conceptions of it, even a, a god um, associated with the uh, worldview of the of the voodoo believers. Now, um, it's not my intention to give a detailed analysis of where the concept of the zombie came from. That has been done before and has been done much better in podcast form than I probably could hope to do justice for. However, um, I've just chosen one particular piece um, crucial to the evolution of the idea of the zombie that I'm going to do a reading from. And that, I think, is one of the most important steps along the way from the, the concept of the zombie being a sort of a catch-all name for various different uh, beings that go bump in the night in the Caribbean and the American South and the the modern concept we have that a zombie is a either a reincarnated corpse or um, in the original sort of Haitian context a, a person who has been kind of fooled or tricked into thinking that they have died and been brought back um, sort of as a mindless automaton so to speak. This evening I'm enjoying a a fine O'Shea's Pale Ale. Uh, it's a warm, early, sort of late spring, early summer night. I'm sitting out on the front of the cabin and all is quiet in the forest around. Quite a, an ideal setting for a tale such as this. Now, little information about the fellow who wrote this book, William Seabrook. So he was born in 1884 and he was from Maryland in the US. 
He was an explorer, a writer, uh, he did a lot of travel writing and he also had great interest in all things weird and occult. And he was quite a, an eccentric character for most of his life. Most uh, biographies you'll read about him f sort of seem to feel like they have to mention the fact that he tried cannibalism once, which is, is true, but he seems to have done it um, maybe for a in the spirit of maybe, shall we say, sensationalist journalism. They also like to mention that he had some various uh, well-known sexual hang-ups and fetishes, which I don't really feel the need to get into here. I don't feel like that's particularly relevant to anything that he actually wrote or did, but people tend to mention it just to imply that he was a bit of an eccentric character. Now, he did a lot of travelling and most of his books reflect this, so he wrote a book called Jungle Ways in 1930 about his adventures in Africa. He wrote a book called The White Monk of Timbuktu in 1934. He even wrote a book about his own time spent uh, in an asylum where he self-committed himself in a book just called Asylum from 1935. So he had a lot of problems and he eventually did commit suicide um, in New York uh, in 1945. But he is most known for his book The Magic Island in 1929, which was all about his trip to Haiti. And this book um, is most well known primarily because it popularised the word zombie in the Western world. Now, there are various cases of the word zombie showing up in books and articles and stuff prior to this. Probably the earliest going back to, I think, about 1819. But as I mentioned, going right up until the turn of the century with Lafcadio Hearn, there was no real consensus about what this word meant. So I think with Seabrook's book, The Magic Island, the, the concept of the zombie is finally sort of nailed down and pinned down. Now, whether we can have a lot of faith in what he wrote as an ethnologist or a collector of folklore is massively up for debate. He was definitely a sensationalist. He definitely was... Uh, into publicising his own adventures and I'm sure he wasn't above kind of sweetening the stories and tarting up his adventures a little bit to make them seem more exciting, uh, perhaps even more coherent. But honestly, I've gone looking for this and besides the fact that he seems to have just been a bit of a disreputable character, I've not found any hard and fast um, analysis of the book uh, carried out by anybody who was able to, you know, catch him out or, or debunk the stories that he told. So uh, with that said, I let the story uh, speak for itself. So this episode is going to be about the chapter called Dead Men Working in the Cane Fields from the book The Magic Island from 1929. So this book made a huge impact on the America. It was very successful. He got a lot of money from it, which then funded further adventures. And it really popularized the concept of voodoo and zombies in particular in the western world like i said before this it was you know things were known about haiti and about voodoo but they they weren't quite as, as solid as they became with this book now before i get to that chapter i just want to mention a couple of things that he says i really like his foreword um it's it's really quite haunting and quite romantic there is of course always with this type of travel literature from this period the the specter of Orientalism, which is, of course, the idea of, you know, white Western guys who go off to um, quote unquote exotic lands looking for adventure and doing their best to sort of amp up how strange and mysterious these places are. That can be seen as offensive. 100% I agree. 
but it does um if when it's carried out with a certain amount of understanding some genuine interest in the people that they're interacting with and just some old-fashioned decent humanity it can breed really good results as well usually with uh, writing from this era you'll get a bit of both to be honest so i won't sugarcoat anything but take a little listen to william seabrook's forward to get an idea of the style of his writing our west indian mailboat lay at anchor in a tropical green gulf from the palm fringed shore a great mass of mountains rose fantastic and mysterious Dark jungle covered their near slopes, but high beyond the jungle, blue-black, bare ranges piled up, towering. At the water's edge, lit by the sunset, sprawled the town of Capatien. Our boat lay so close that, in the bright fading light, it was easy to distinguish landmarks. Here, amid more modern structures, were the wrecked mansions of the 16th century French colonials who had imported slaves from Africa and made Haiti the richest colony in the Western Hemisphere. Here was the paved pleasance on the waterfront, scene of white massacres when the blacks rose with fire and sword. Here in ruins was the palace built for Pauline Bonaparte when Napoleon sent his brother-in-law with an imperial army to do battle with slaves who had won their freedom. On a peak behind the cape loomed the gigantic fortress which the self-crowned black king Christophe had built after every soldier of that white imperial army was dead or had sailed back to France. And now above the present-day government headquarters in the town floated the red-blue flag made by ripping the white from the French tricolour. Thus it had floated for more than a hundred years as the symbolic emblem of black freedom. All this was panoramic as we lay at anchor in the sunset, but as night fell it faded to vagueness and disappeared. So that's the intro to the book. Very romantic. It kind of gives you a flavor of the exotic, the exotic world he's trying to conjure up. I think you can see why this was such a hit at the time. Now, voodoo has been, you know, the way it's been used in Western culture since this time, it's always been used as a bit of a boogeyman. You know, these, these strange, dark um, superstition, you know, practiced by dangerous people. I mean, in truth, it's a religion just like any other. And honestly, if you went to a Southern Baptist church of just the right stripe, I'm sure you'd see things just as frenzied, just as unusual, um, and really not any stranger, to be honest. So with that in mind, I'm just going to mention one little note that Seabrook adds here about voodoo. Now, this, despite the fact that he is about to kick off his book, you know, full of exoticizing and orientalizing an entire culture, but he does take the time to say this. Voodoo is not a secret cult or society in the sense that Freemasonry or the Rosicrucian cult is secret. It is a religion, and secret only as Christianity was secret in the catacombs, through fear of persecution. Like every living religion, it has its inner mysteries, but that is secretness in a different sense. It is a religion toward which whites generally have been either scoffers, spiers, or active enemies, and whose adherents, therefore, have been forced to practice secrecy, above all where whites were concerned. So, Seabrook is being unusually uh, generous here, I think, in his description of voodoo, especially considering some of the things he says elsewhere in the book. But in this section, at least, he wants the reader to know that, you know, if you were a white Christian reading this book in America in 1930, 
you aren't really any better or any different from the people he's about to talk about. And your religion once was had to be kind of kept in the shadows, just the same way that voodoo is today. So I, I found that quite interesting. Um, again, people's attitudes at this time are very complex. You rarely find a writer, even ones who are, you know, very invested and sympathetic in the cultures they they study who is completely divorced from some attitudes that we would find pretty repulsive today. But, you know, some of them are definitely better than others. I will mention as well that one of the reasons why voodoo was definitely attempted to be stamped out by the whites in earlier times was it was associated with uh, rebellion. So there was a large, supposedly a large voodoo ceremony on the island at um at a place called Bois Cayman. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And um, this was a meeting of large numbers of voodoo believers which had spiritual but also political significance as it was later believed that this gathering, this get-together, was kind of like a fomenting of the what, what, what turned out to be the Haitian Revolution. And of course, they soon found themselves as the only, the first and the only free black republic in that part of the world. Um, so they ended up spending many, many decades after this as a bit of a pariah state as the US and other countries didn't want to trade with them. I, I suppose they didn't want, they didn't wish any success upon this, you know, newly freed slave nation, uh, lest other nations, lest slaves in other nations, should I say, get any ideas. So the reasons why Haiti was so poor and so and, and had so many problems for so many years afterwards really are I think you can you can tie them up in that difficult birth and the way they were treated by the other nations anyway let's get to the voodoo let's get to the zombies so without any further preamble I'm going to read a the chapter dead men working in the cane fields Pretty mulatto Julie had taken baby Marianne to bed. Constance, Polonese and I sat late before the doorway of his kyle, talking of fire hags, demons, werewolves and vampires, while a full moon, rising slowly, flooded his sloping cotton fields and the dark rolling hills beyond. Polonese was a Haitian farmer, but he was no common jungle peasant. He lived on the island of Laganave, where I shall return to him in later chapters. He seldom went over to the Haitian mainland, but he knew what was going on in Port-au-Prince and spoke sometimes of installing a radio. A countryman, half peasant born and bred, he was familiar with every superstition of the mountains and the plain, yet too intelligent to believe them literally true, or at least so I gathered from his talk. He was interested in helping me towards an understanding of the tangled Haitian folklore. It was only by chance that we came presently to a subject which, though I refused for a long time to admit it, lies in a baffling category on the ragged edge of things which are beyond either superstition or reason. He had been telling me of fire hags who left their skins at home and set the cane fields blazing, of the vampire a woman, sometimes living, sometimes dead, who sucked the blood of children and who could be distinguished because her hair always turned an ugly red. Of the werewolf, Shosh in Creole, a man or woman who took the form of some animal, usually a dog, and when killing lambs, young goats, 
sometimes babies. All this, I gathered, he considered to be pure superstition, as he told me with tolerant scorn how his friend and neighbour Osman had one night seen a grey dog slinking with bloody jaws from his sheep pen, and who, after having shot and exercised and buried it, was so convinced he had killed a certain girl named Leanne, who was generally reputed to be a gauche, that when he met her two days later on the path to Grand Source, he believed she was a ghost come back for vengeance, and fled howling. As Polonies talked on, I reflected that these tales ran closely parallel not only with these of the Negroes in Georgia and the Carolinas, but with the medieval folklore of white Europe. Werewolves, vampires and demons were certainly no novelty, but I recalled one creature I had been hearing about in Haiti, which sounded exclusively local. The zombie. It seemed, or so I had been assured by Negroes more credulous than Polonese, that while the Zohini came from the grave, it was neither a ghost nor yet a person who had been raised like Lazarus from the dead. The zombie, they say, is a soulless human corpse, still dead, but taken from the grave and endowed by sorcery with a mechanical semblance of life. It is a dead body which is made to walk and act and move as if it were alive. People who have the power to do this go to a fresh grave, dig up the body before it has had time to rot, galvanise it into movement, and then make of it a servant or a slave, occasionally for the commission of some crime, more often simply as a drudge around the habitation or the farm, setting it dull, heavy tasks and beating it like a dumb beast if it slackens. As this was revolving in my mind, I said to Polonese, It seems to me that these werewolves and vampires are first cousins to those we have at home, but I have never, except in Haiti, heard of anything like zombies. Let us talk of them for a little while. I wonder if you can tell me something of this zombie superstition. I should like to get at some idea of how it originated. My rational friend Polonese was deeply astonished. He leaned over and put his hand in protest on my knee. Superstition? But I assure you that this of which you now speak is not a matter of superstition. Alas, these things, and other evil practices connected with the dead, exist. They exist to an extent that you whites do not dream of, though evidences are everywhere under your eyes. Why do you suppose that even the poorest peasants, when they can, bury their dead beneath solid tombs of masonry? Why do they bury them so often in their own yards close to the doorway? Why, so often, do you see a tomb or grave set close beside a busy road or footpath where people are always passing? It is to assure the poor, unhappy dead such protection as we can. I will take you in the morning to see the grave of my brother, who was killed in the way you know. It is over there, on the little ridge, which you can see clearly now in the moonlight, open space all around it, close beside the trail which everyone passes, going to and from Grand Source. Through four nights we watched yonder, in the peristyle, Osman and I, with shotguns, for at that time both my dead brother and I had bitter enemies, until we were sure the body had begun to rot. No, my friend, no, no, there are only too many true cases. At this very moment, in the moonlight, there are zombies working on this island, less than two hours' ride from my own habitation. We know about them, but we do not dare to interfere, so long as our own dead are left unmolested. If you will ride with me tomorrow night, yes, I will show you, 
dead men working in the cane fields. Close even to the cities, there are sometimes zombies. Perhaps you have already heard of those that were at Hasco. What about Hasco? I interrupted him, for in the whole of Haiti, Hasco is perhaps the last name anybody would think of connecting with either sorcery or superstition. The word is American commercial synthetic, like Nabisco, Delco, Sokini. It stands for the Haitian American Sugar Company, an immense factory plant dominated by a huge chimney with clanging machinery, steam whistles, freight cars. It is like a chunk of Hoboken. It lies in the eastern suburbs of Port-au-Prince, and behind it stretches the cane fields of the cul-de-sac. Haskell makes rum when the sugar market is off, pays low wages, 20 or 30 cents a day, and gives steady work. It is modern big business, and it sounds it, looks it, smells it. Such, then, was the incongruous background for the weird tale Constance Polonese now told me. The spring of 1918 was a big cane season, and the factory, which had its own plantations, offered a bonus on the wage of new workers. Soon heads of families and villages from the mountain and the plain came trailing their ragtag little armies, men, women, children, trooping to the registration bureau and thence into the fields. One morning, an old black headman, T. Joseph of Columbia, appeared leading a band of ragged creatures who shuffled along behind him, staring dumbly like people walking in a daze. As Joseph lined them up for registration, they still stared, vacant-eyed like cattle, and made no reply when asked to give their names. Joseph said they were ignorant people from the slopes of Morno Diable, a roadless mountain district near the Dominican border, and that they did not understand the creole of the plains. They were frightened, he said, by the din and smoke of the great factory, but under his direction they would work hard in the fields. The farther they were sent away from the factory, from the noise and bustle of the railroad yards, the better it would be. Better indeed, for these were not living men and women, but poor unhappy zombies, whom Joseph and his wife, Croyance, had dragged from their peaceful graves to slay for him in the sun. And if by chance a brother or father of the dead should see and recognise them, Joseph knew that it would be a very bad affair for him. So they were assigned to distant fields beyond the crossroads, and camped there, keeping to themselves like any proper family or village group. But in the evening, when other little companies, encamped apart as they were, gathered each around its one big common pot of savoury millet or plantains, generously seasoned with dried fish and garlic, Croyants would tend two pots upon the fire, for as everyone knows, the zombies must never be permitted to taste salt or meat. So the food prepared for them was tasteless and unseasoned. As the zombies toiled day after day dumbly in the sun, Joseph sometimes beat them to make them move faster, but Croyance began to pity the poor dead creatures who should be at rest, and pity them in the evenings when she dished out their flat, tasteless bouillel. Each Saturday afternoon, Joseph went to collect the wages for them all, and what divisions he made was no concern of Hasco, so long as the work went forward. Sometimes Joseph alone, sometimes Croyance alone, went to Croix de Bouquet for the Saturday night bamboche, or the Sunday cockfight, but always one of them remained with the zombies to prepare their food and see that they did not stray away. 
through February this continued until Fête Dieu approached with a Saturday-Sunday-Monday holiday for all the workers. Joseph, with his pockets full of money, went to Port-au-Prince and left Croyance behind, cautioning her as usual, and she agreed to remain and tend the zombies. For he promised her that at the Mardi Gras she should visit the city. But when Sunday morning dawned, it was lonely in the fields, and her kind old woman's heart was filled with pity for the zombies, and she thought, perhaps it will cheer them a little to see the gay crowds and the processions at Croix de Bouquet, and since all the Morno Diab people will have gone back to the mountain to celebrate Fête Dieu at home, no one will recognise them and no harm can come of it. And it is the truth that Croyance also wished to see the gay procession. So she tied a new bright-coloured handkerchief around her head, aroused the zombies from the sleep that was scarcely different from their waking, gave them their morning bowl of cold, unsalted plantains boiled in water, which they ate dumbly uncomplaining, and set out with them for the town, single file, as the country people always walk. Croyance, in her bright kerchief, leading the nine dead men and women behind her, past the railroad crossing, where she murmured a prayer to Legba, past the great white-painted wooden Christ, who hung life-sized in the glaring sun, where she stopped to kneel and cross herself, but the poor zombies prayed neither to Papa Legba nor to Brother Jesus, for they were dead bodies walking without souls or minds. They followed her to the market square, before the church where hundreds of little thatched open shelters, used on weekdays for buying and selling, were empty of trade, but crowded here and there by gossiping groups in the grateful shade. To the shade of one of these market booths, which was still unoccupied, she led the zombies, and they sat like people asleep with their eyes open, staring but seeing nothing, as the bells in the church began to ring, and the procession came from the priest's house, red purple robes, golden crucifix held aloft, tinkling bells and swinging incense pots, followed by little black boys in white lace robes, little black girls in starched white dresses, with shoes and stockings from the parish school, with coloured ribbons in their kinky hair, and none beneath a big umbrella leading them. Quayance knelt with the throng as the procession passed, and wished she might follow it across the square to the church steps, but the zombies just sat and stared, seeing nothing. When noontime came, women with baskets passed to and fro in the crowd, or sat selling bonbons, which were not candy but little sweet cakes, figs, which were not figs but sweet bananas, oranges, dried herring, biscuit, cassava bread, and clarine poured from a bottle at a penny a glass. As Croyance sat with her savoury dried herring and biscuit baked with salt and soda, and provision of clarine in the tin cup by her side, she pitied the zombies who had worked so faithfully for Joseph in the cane fields, and who now had nothing, while all the other groups around were feasting. And as she pitied them, a woman passed, crying, Tablette, tablette pistache, toi pour dicobe. Tablettes are a sort of candy, in shape and size like cookies made of brown cane sugar, sometimes with pistaches, which in Haiti are peanuts, or with coriander seed. And Croyance thought, these tablettes are not salted or seasoned, they are sweet and can do no harm to the zombies just this once. So she untied the corner of her kerchief, took out a coin, a gourdon, the quarter of a gourd, and bought some of the tablettes, 
which she broke in halves and divided among the zombies, who began sucking and mumbling them in their mouths. But the baker of the tablets had salted the pistache nuts before stirring them into the rapid dew, and as the zombies tasted the salt, they knew that they were dead, and made a dreadful outcry, and arose and turned their faces towards the mountain. No one dared to stop them, for they were corpses walking in the sunlight. And they themselves and all the people knew that they were corpses, and they disappeared towards the mountain. When later they drew near their own village on the slopes of Morno Diab, these dead men and women, walking single file in the twilight, with no soul leading them or daring to follow, the people of their village, who were also holding Hambosh in the marketplace, saw them drawing closer, recognising among them fathers, brothers, wives and daughters whom they had buried months before. Most of them knew at once the truth, that these were zombies who had been dragged dead from their graves, but others hoped that a blessed miracle had taken place on this fete dieu, and rushed forward to take them in their arms and welcome them. But the zombies shuffled through the marketplace, recognising neither father, nor wife, nor mother, and as they turned leftward up the path leading to the graveyard, a woman whose daughter was in the procession of the dead threw herself, screaming before the girl's shuffling feet, and begged her to stay, but the grave, cold feet of the daughter and the feet of the other dead shuffled over her and onward, and as they approached the graveyard, they began to shuffle faster and rushed among the graves, and each before his own empty grave began clawing at the stones and earth to enter it again. And as their cold hands touched the earth of their own graves, they fell and lay there, rotting carrion. That night the fathers, sons and brothers of the zombies, after restoring the bodies to their graves, sent a messenger on muleback down the mountain, who returned next day with the name of T. Joseph, and with a stolen shirt of T. Joseph's, which had been worn next his skin and was steeped in the grease sweat of his body. They collected silver in the village and went with the name of T. Joseph and the shirt of T. Joseph to a bokor beyond True Cayman, who made a deadly needle oanga, a black bag oanga, pierced all through with pins and needles, filled with dry goat dung, circled with cock's feathers dipped in blood. And lest the needle oanga be slow in working or be rendered weak by Joseph's counter-magic, they sent men down to the plain who lay in wait patiently for Joseph and one night hacked off his head with a machete. When Polynes had finished this recital, I said to him, after a moment of silence, You are not a peasant like those of the cul-de-sac. You are a reasonable man, or at least it seems to me you were. Now how much of that story, honestly, do you believe? P replied earnestly, I did not see these special things, but there were many witnesses, and why should I not believe them myself when I have also seen zombies? When you have also seen them, with their faces and their eyes in which there is no life, you will not only believe in these zombies who should be resting in their graves, you will pity them from the bottom of your heart. Before finally taking leave of La Ganave, I did see these walking dead men, and I did, in a sense, believe in them and pity them indeed from the bottom of my heart. It was not the next night, though Polynice, true to his promise, rode with me across the plain Mapu to the deserted, silent cane fields where he had hoped to show me zombies labouring. It was not on any night. It was in broad daylight one afternoon when we passed that way again on the lower trail to pick me. Polynice reined in his horse 
and pointed to a rough, stony, terraced slope, on which four labourers, three men and a woman, were chopping the earth with machetes, among straggling cotton stalks, a hundred yards distant from the trail. Wait while I go up there, he said, excited because a chance had come to fulfil his promise. I think it is La Merci with the zombies. If I wave to you, leave your horse and come. Starting up the slope, he shouted to the woman, It is I, Polonese, and when he waved later, I followed. As I clambered up, Polonese was talking to the woman. She had stopped work, a big-boned, hard-faced black girl who regarded us with surly unfriendliness. My first impression of the three supposed zombies, who continued dumbly at work, was that there was something about them unnatural and strange. They were plodding like brutes, like automatons. Without stooping down, I could not fully see their faces, which were bent expressionless over their work. Polonese touched one of them on the shoulder, motioned him to get up. Obediently, like an animal, he slowly stood erect, and what I saw then, coupled with what I had heard previously, or despite it, came as a rather sickening shock. The eyes were the worst. It was not my imagination. They were in truth like the eyes of a dead man, not blind, but staring, unfocused, unseeing. The whole face, for that matter, was bad enough. It was vacant, as if there was nothing behind it. It seemed not only expressionless, but incapable of expression. I had seen so much previously in Haiti that was outside ordinary normal experience, that for the flash of a second I had a sickening, almost panicky lapse in which I thought, or rather felt, Great God, maybe this stuff is really true, and if it is true, it is rather awful, for it upsets everything. By everything, I meant the natural fixed laws and processes on which all modern human thought and actions are based. Then suddenly I remembered, and my mind seized the memory as a man sinking in water clutches a solid plank. The face of a dog I had once seen in the histological laboratory at Columbia. Its entire front brain had been removed in an experimental operation weeks before. It moved about, it was alive, but its eyes were like the eyes I now saw staring. I recovered from my mental panic. I reached out and grasped one of the dangling hands. It was calloused, solid, human. Holding it, I said, Bonjour. The zombie stared without responding. The black wench, La Merci, who was their keeper, now more sullen than ever, pushed me away. Negroes' affairs are not for whites. But I had seen enough. Keeper was the key to it. Keeper was the word that had leapt naturally into my mind as she protested, and just as naturally the zombies were nothing but poor, ordinary, demented human beings, idiots forced to toil in the fields. It was a good, rational explanation, but it is far from being the end of this story. It satisfied me then, and I said as much to Polonese as we went down the slope. At first he did not contradict me, even said doubtfully, perhaps, but as we reached the horses, before mounting, he stopped and said, Look here, I respect your distrust of what you call superstition and your desire to find out the truth, but if what you were saying now were the whole truth, how could it be that over and over again people who have stood by and seen their own relatives buried have, sometimes soon, sometimes months or years after, found these relatives working as zombies and have sometimes killed the man who held them in servitude? Polonese, I said, 
That's just the part of it that I can't believe. The zombies in such cases may have resembled the dead persons, or even been doubles. You know what doubles are, how two people resemble each other to a startling degree. But it is a fixed rule of reasoning in America that we will never accept the possibility of a thing's being supernatural so long as any natural explanation, even far-fetched, seems adequate. Well, said he, if you spent many years in Haiti, you would have a very hard time to fit this American reasoning into some of the things you encountered here. As I have said, there is more to this story, and I think it best to tell it very simply. In all Haiti, there is no clearer scientifically trained mind, no sounder pragmatic rationalist than Dr. Antoine Villiers. When I sat later with him in his study, surrounded by hundreds of scientific books in French, German and English, and told him of what I had seen and of my conversations with Polynese, he said, My dear sir, I do not believe in miracles nor in supernatural events, and I do not want to shock your Anglo-Saxon intelligence, but this Polynese of yours, with all his superstition, may have been closer to the partial truth than you were. Understand me clearly. I do not believe that anyone has ever been raised literally from the dead, neither Lazarus, nor the daughter of Jairus, nor Jesus Christ himself, yet I am not sure, paradoxical as it may sound, that there is not something frightful, something in the nature of criminal sorcery if you like, in some cases at least, in this matter of zombies. I am by no means sure that some of them, who now toil in the fields, were not dragged from the actual graves in which they lay in their coffins, buried by their mourning families. It is then something like suspended animation, I asked. I will show you, he replied, a thing which may supply the key to what you are seeking. And standing on a chair, he pulled down a paper-bound book from a top shelf. It was nothing mysterious or esoteric. It was the current official code penal of the Republic of Haiti. He thumbed through it and pointed to a paragraph which read, Article 249 also shall be qualified as attempted murder the employment which may be made against any person of substances which, without causing actual death, produce a lethargic coma more or less prolonged. If, after the administering of such substances, the person has been buried, the act shall be considered murder, no matter what result follows. So there you go folks, that was Dead Men Working in the Cane Fields from The Magic Island by William Seabrook, 1929. This story has long been with me. I think I had it in one of those slightly trashy world famous books as a kid in which the story was presented, you know, as utter truth. So the, the, the tale about the Haskell workers and was told as if it was something that had actually happened and not as a bit of folklore passed on to uh, this writer from long ago. One of the things that always struck me as interesting was the, the connection or the, the disparity, I suppose, between this uh, supposed, you know, slightly backwards and superstitious civilization we were presented with and then the, the very modern, very 20th century uh, kind of operations of the, the sugar plantation and the Hasco factory. Also the fact that, though it's a deeply weird story, um, right from the beginning, 
we're kind of given the key to it, we're given the rational side as well, that this isn't not in fact some sort of supernatural happening, more of a, well, a cultural one in terms of this could only happen in a culture that believes in zombies, but also a medical or chemical one, with the implication that some sort of substance is being used to put the people into a sort of, as they put it, a lethargic coma. And I suppose that bit at the end with the Article 249 from the Penal Code is supposed to imply that, you know, this is something that is known and happens a lot in Haitian culture, enough so that the ruling authorities felt the need to legislate against it. So yeah, a story that's long been with me. I was very pleased to finally get a copy of the original book and track this one down to its source and find out where indeed it came from. So what we have here is a 12-page chapter in a book which does talk a lot about voodoo, but this is the main chapter, or pretty much the only chapter, where he talks about zombies. So from these 12 pages effectively come the modern conception of zombies. So shortly after this, just couple of years, I think you have White Zombie, the movie with Bela Lugosi, clearly very influenced by Seabrook's book, as most types of zombie fiction for several decades after the book actually were. So that's everything for this episode. As usual, all the usual things apply, blah blah blah, you've heard it all before. Please rate, please review, please give us all those lovely stars, and most importantly, please share the episode with anyone who you think might like it. You can do so by getting in touch with us over on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland. Meanwhile, over on Instagram, we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. And on Facebook, we're just plain old White Atlantic Weird. So once again, thanks for listening and stay safe. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. Following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Can you prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by